I spent 32 years building two agencies. First was called Communique, and the second was Capital C. And there was a family that stood out, the Clune family. Both the husband and wife were instrumental in our growth. The first to impact the business is feisty Italian, Anne-Marie Clune. She showed up with passion and energy and put a level of professionalism to the agency. And then her husband, Tom, joined me there and then became my partner at Capital City, an agency I had for 22 years before selling it. Now, the Clunes were great at business, but over and above that, they're among the finest parents I've ever met. And their three boys, Rich, Matt, and Ben, are all tall poppies because of the love and values that flow through both sides of their family. And their oldest boy, Richard Clune, is a professional hockey player, played in the NHL, and today is the captain of the Toronto Marlies, the AHL team of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Oh, back up front, Clune scores! Rich Clune, boom, shaka! As the Marlies go up three, nothing. In the NHL, Rich has always played the role of the agitator, the disruptor who skates like the wind, but with upper and lower body strength that can flatten the locomotive. But Rich shouldn't be there for two reasons. First, he was considered by many who scout talent that the role he had, he was just too short for it. But the other reason, he was an addict. Alcohol and drugs took over his soul. So how did this kid get to the NHL? Hiding his demons at first and then finding a way to control them. And how has he extended a hockey career far past the shelf life of an average player? Well, he did so with heart and the love of his brothers and his family and Rich Clune's story is one worth sharing. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. So, Rich, I know that people nickname you Dickie, but I've known you as Rich and Richard your entire life, so bear with me. And I wanted to say, first of all, it's fantastic. And I'm just so honored you're joining me in Chatter the Matters. Uh, it's, it's so good to be on here with you. And you know how I've looked up to you my whole life. And I can't say enough good things about you. It's good to see you. It's fantastic. Now, we go back as far as anyone can. And I can say that with a polygraph because when your mother was pregnant with you, we were working together. And we've become great family friends. I started to go to your hockey games. And I want you to tell this story because, you know, I've always been the, trying to be the motivator. And I remember you as a young kid saying, hey, Rich, if you score a bunch of goals this year, I think it was 50 goals, I'm going to give you a signed Raptor game ball. Share the story of what happened heading into the last game when you're a couple of goals short and why you stood out as one of the great stories of my life. There's funny, you know, there's some things that you just never forget. And, I, and I'll never forget that story. I remember you know, being over at your house as I was a lot as a young kid, the Toronto Raptors had just come out in the city and they were like this hot new team. And you had this big signed Raptors basketball that I had my eye on. I, I loved basketball My in my nature. All my friends at school, they loved the Raptors and loved basketball. And I wanted to be able to walk into school at this signed ball as like the new king, right? Because basketball was so popular. And I went into my last game at Ted Reeve Arena. I think I was four goals shy. And I was sick as a dog. I, I, I probably had the flu and I begged my mom to let me go. And, and I, w- I wouldn't take no for an answer. And I went on the ice and I think someone has a home video of it somewhere. And I, and I had three goals. I'd scored my third goal and I puked right through my cage all over the ice. 
And I remember coming off the ice and you, my mom and my dad were down there and you cleaned me up and you're like, all right, you're done. You scored three goals. Like there's no more. And I was, I, I hardly think I was older than six. And I just, I was not coming off that ice. And I think you guys could see the look in my eyes and you were looking at a kid that it, it was far beyond, you, you know, my love for the game and, and my understanding of what it took to, to do things in life. And I was not going to be denied that Raptors ball. And I went out there and scored that goal. And I, I, it's one of my favorite memories as a kid and kind of foretelling as to how my life would unfold. Later on, and you and I have shared many cups of tea, you talk about, I said, how did you get to the NHL? And, and I remember you telling me something about 10% of the players just get there because they have such gifted ability. But the other 90%, the other 900 players that suit up in the NHL, there's 9,000 people that could be on the ice. So to be one of those 900, you just have to want it more. After all the years in the NHL, do you really believe that it comes down to that, that it's just about heart and commitment more than anything else that gets you there? I've been at it for almost 16 years as a professional. Every day that goes by, that statement gets solidified more and more. And I'm learning more about what that means. You know, as you move through the ranks, I think there can be discrepancies when you're younger and you, you know, the, the, the pool gets a little smaller. But when you get to the top, especially the pros, after everyone's been drafted or free agents, there's two things that set players apart. It's their heart, their heart and their mind. For whatever reason, I believe a lot of it, like you mentioned, had to do with my upbringing and my parents and the people that were around me as a young boy. I feel like that's something I grasped from a young age and that no matter what happened, good, bad, or indifferent along the way, I was literally not going to be denied. And I just was going to take the beatings and take the losses, never, ever quit and never waver. No matter how hard things got, I was going to dig deep. That's what it comes down to. There's a lot of things that I could teach a player about technicalities and, and the different you know ways to think the game, but there's some things that are very hard to teach. And as you know, in your industry, a lot of people don't have that. It's That's the heart and the will to go the distance. Do you think, and I know you've studied this because you're a student of life, you're a student of humanity. Do you think we'll ever find that switch that we can just turn on the passion. People just realize that life isn't a dress rehearsal and it's the one chance you have to go after things. The age that we live in now with social media and that direct contact. I think that that has been one positive of those things is that people's stories are so accessible to get out there and the stories and people going on podcasts and TV shows and they're able to verbally articulate what it takes to do all those things. but. I think the power of the mind now is starting to be backed by science. I think that people are starting to realize there is no replacement for hard work. There's no replacement for having an obsession, an obsession to do well and a burning fire in you that you need to exhaust every day. Exhausting one's talents, something that, that gets overlooked. I think some people have a good day one day and then they have a bad day or an average day or an indifferent day. It's how can we have a good day every single day and that's a mindset. It's a decision. And I learned that from many places, not just being a hockey player. And I look at your dad played professional hockey over in Sweden. Your two brothers are great athletes. Did you pursue sports because you wanted to? If I backtrack through my furthest and deepest memories as a child, I remember seeing pictures of my dad on our wall in our basement of him being a hockey player. And I remember watching the Toronto Maple Leafs as a young boy. Actually, you know what? I am of, of the age where I listened to it on the radio, if you can imagine that. Early on, I looked at 
let's just take sports in general. I was a huge, huge track and field fan, Donovan Bailey, all these larger than life athletes. And I will admit, I looked at them almost as demi-like gods. I did not think it was humanly possible for me to achieve that sort of level of athleticism. But I did love to play. I loved to play all sports, not just hockey. I was a soccer player, lacrosse, all the school sports. I loved to participate. I loved having friends. And I truly enjoyed playing. I was not playing for any other anybody else's passions, not my dad, not my mom. I loved competitive. I loved to compete. I loved the thrill. I loved the hard work. And as I got older, something inside of me, and it's got to be the way I'm wired, a lot of it had to do with the fact that so many people around me did not have confidence in their abilities as an athlete. And I had this sort of like delusional mindset of like, oh, you don't think you can do it. And something excited me when I would think I'll I'll do it. (laughs) And I think about that often. Once I made that little small decision, every year that went by, it, it turned more intense. And I started to do things that were conducive of becoming a pro athlete. When it boils down to it, there is not one single thing on this planet that could peel me away from hockey specific or sport because I've always done it for me. And I think if I was doing it for any other reason, I would not be standing here talking to you today as a current pro athlete. I was not going to be denied a career, this journey that I'm still on today. As Hudson Allen feeds it back in, Rich Clue shoots, scores, Rich Clue. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. If you're a hockey fan, you know who Richard Clune is. If you're a passionate hockey fan, you know he goes by the name Dickie Clune. One of the most popular players in any team he's ever played on. And he's played for the LA Kings, National Predators, Toronto Maple Leafs. Today he's got the captain on his sweater for the Maple Leaf affiliate, the Toronto Marlies. But as you'll soon learn, it could have gone a different way. Richard, when we were doing our pre-interview, you framed your life as follows. 1987 to 1999, childhood. 1999 to 2000, mental illness begins to coincide with as life gets more intense. What happened during that time? Because part of what we just heard about is you're going into the gym, you're starting to you know, read about being the best athlete you can be, but the other side, something's knocking at your, your door or your mind. Give us a perspective of what's happening during that part of your life. I have a memory of, of coming home with a report card around that time, and I, I struggled to transition into private school, St. Mike's. I struggled with the curriculum, and I didn't come home with great marks. And I felt that the combination of that and the combination of making that decision around that age that I was going to become a pro one day, I believe that coupled with, you know, a predisposition to mental illness that I believe is part genetic, it created the perfect storm that that's when I started to think that all these things that were, you know, this hole that was inside of me that I felt needed filling, I began to um, use alcohol. And I got drunk for the first time at the age of 13. That kicked off an obsession in my mind that I would, I battled until I was 23, until I eventually got some real help. But that's how it started. 
when I sit back and try to remember exactly what my mindset was and how I got through all those years, it's such a complicated answer. But I will say in the beginning, alcohol, you know, into my teenage years and my late teenage years was a solution to my problem. And it kept me from making even more drastic decisions. And that's sometimes hard for people to understand. You're one of the most accomplished storytellers and speakers, and you're asked very often to share your stories. And I know people come up quietly afterwards because they're battling their own demons, and maybe they're looking to drugs or alcohol to fill that hole that you talk about. What advice do you give them that there might be a better path to follow than to simply drown your sorrows versus try to repair your sorrows? I try to to keep things in my own personal experience. And, and as opposed to telling people what I think they should do, I tell them what worked for me, one, because that's all I really know. And what works for me may not necessarily work for the next person. But what I will say, all the things that I know that I felt that kept me from getting the help that I needed, like shame, fear, um, guilt, you know, all those negative sort of emotions and feelings and experiences that I think are similar in everyone's persons. You know, our stories will all look different, but when it boils down to it, how we feel on the inside is what matters. And what I will say is those things can and do get better if you do ask for help and if you do open your voice and reach out. And that's just what I suggest to people in the beginning. There's a quote that I heard that I, I'm not really big on quotes, but I wanted everyone to hear everything I wasn't saying. And when I heard that, it was so true. You know, I wanted people to help me and I wanted people to see I was suffering, but I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't know how to say I'm, I'm upset or I'm sad or I'm scared. You know, it's interesting as you start, you know, thinking of the successful young athlete, you're not only gifted athletically, you're a great looking guy, you've got a big smile, great personality. They kind of might tackle, well, that's just partying. You're just partying. You know, that's what kids do. They, they party. But as you're saying, your drinking is getting worse. But what I'm also fascinated by, but your game is getting better. I remember watching you play. And I can't even remember what team it was. It was called the Energy Line. What team were you on? Yeah, that line, that, that team you were referring to, that, that was actually the Toronto Marlboros. And it could get a little confusing because I play for the Marlies now, the pro team. But there's a team in the greater Toronto Hockey League called the Toronto Marlboros. And they have teams from you know, eight years old up to 15 years old. And that's the team that I played for. I used to go to the games and, you know, there'd be, I'd say six, seven, 800 people there. Your line would get on and there'd be a buzz in the crowd. Even though two thirds of the arena was empty, the three of you worked together. You had smiles in your face. You were destructive on ice because of your shot, your size and your power. And all of that led you to having to make a really tough choice. Because from what I understand is, Based on your capabilities, even though some of the scouts thought you might be too small for the role of this agitator, you had some pretty impressive U.S. colleges coming after you for full-ride scholarships. Instead, you chose the OHL. So if the people don't understand that fork in the road, explain what you had to decide, which really, in many ways, would decide the future of your life. It was actually an early goal of mine was to to get a full scholarship and go down to the States and play hockey at a, at a big division one school. That was a path I wanted to go down, but being a resident of Toronto and playing in Toronto um, and being the competitive person that I am at 15, you, you become eligible for the Ontario hockey league draft. 
and basically what that entails is your as your season goes on, all these teams send scouts out every night and you begin to get ranked and evaluated and, and, and projected of what you can be. The players that want to go to college, they kind of don't partake in that draft and you can actually revoke your eligibility. Initially, that was the plan. You know, I was, I was underdeveloped at that age compared to my peers on the whole. I wasn't, you know, I hadn't hit my growth spurt yet, matured at all physically. So I was, I was dealing with that. But then as the year started to go on, I began to, you know, receive guidance from people around me and coaches and different agents were talking to, our, to my family and players on my team. I started to get sucked into the uh, competition. And as I had learned, it was, the, it was probably the most realistic route to get drafted to the NHL. So my goals changed and I changed and I was ready to pivot right on the spot. That entailed of me deciding if I was going to leave home at the age of 16 to go play um, because I had turned myself into a top prospect. I was drafted in the second round and became eligible to play as uh, what they call an underager. So as a 16-year-old amongst you know many 18, 19, and 20-year-olds, I had to decide basically, um, you know, did I want to choose an education or did I want to pursue a, an NHL career? And looking back, I could probably have gone about it a different way, but I basically passed up on, you know, potentially going to a Harvard or a, or a Boston college to move to Sarnia, Ontario and, and play in the Ontario Hockey League. And you're a 16-year-old, you're going into a league where the culture is so crazy. You've got people coming in at 16 or 17. You said the gifted ones that, that you know are going to make it. Everybody else playing for their shot. And I, I would have to imagine by the time you're 19 or 20, if you haven't made it, you're just, you know, your career's over. So the dynamics must be so different in that league where you're almost fresh meat and maybe there's some older people there that are, if anything, maybe feeling resentful or feeling like their dream is, is being extinguished. When I first entered the locker room and went to training camp, I didn't really realize how big of a jump it was until I got up close and saw it. To give you some context, I think I was about 160 pounds, 165 pounds, probably 5'8 or 5'9 at the time in my first year. You know, there were some players on my team that were 220 pounds, 6'3 men with beards that liked to fight and liked to fight a lot. Getting into that locker room right away, there's just the immediate physical difference between me and everybody else and then there's the hierarchy of the players and you know fifth year fourth year third year second year da, 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 draft picks and tough guys and all this stuff it can be a very intimidating uh environment and i think it's something that probably stops people right in their tracks from pursuing a career in hockey because getting through the junior ranks can be torturous it's public knowledge now just how toxic the junior hockey culture was when I played. I'm under the impression that things have made, you know, drastic improvements and have come a long way. But when I played, it, it was a very, very toxic environment. And there was a lot of, you know, I had a lot of good times and I learned a lot of hard lessons in those years uh, playing in that league. This is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. We come back, Richard begins his OHL career with a force, earns his way onto Team Canada Juniors, his focus in the NHL, but he begins to lose some focus as soft drugs become part of his life. Hi, this is Tony Chapman, host of the radio show and podcast, Chatter That Matters. Did you know that only one in five youth with a mental health illness can get access to the care they need? 
Well, a big shout out to the RBC Foundation and RBC Future Launch for supporting over 150 youth mental health organizations. And in doing so, they help youth and their families get the care they need and deserve. And I can remember I left the detox early as well and, and went home. I kind of, you know, I do things my own way and my recovery was no different. I'm not going to say I was an angel, you know, I, 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 went, I went through it, you know, on my own terms. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My special guest is Richard Dickey Clune. I've known him since the day he was born. I love him as a human being. I love his contribution to the planet and for sharing his stories of mental illness and abuse so we can all learn from them. You know, Richard, you show up in Sarnia, people are still raising their eyebrows. Did he make the right choice? Has he got, you know, the grit? And next thing you know, I'm hearing about you're under the Team Canada under 18. You're going over to play, I believe, in Czechoslovakia. Yep. And I sent your dad over. Our agency doesn't need you. Get the hell over there and, and just give us a report every day. I mean, he walked on air. How did that transition happen from sitting in that locker room to finding your way to one of the most elite hockey competitions in the world? After my first season in the Ontario Hockey League, Hockey Canada invites all the best players under 18 to um, a camp in Alberta. And essentially, you try out uh, in, a, in a week span. And I ended up somehow defying the odds and, and, and surprising myself. As you know, I've introduced myself here as someone who, who looks at things and, and, and finds a way to do things. But even, you know, I had my doubts there. I was surprised. I wasn't surprised that I got invited to the tournament. But when I got there, when I walked in day one, I wasn't convinced I was going to make the team. It wasn't until we started to get going and I realized, hey, I'm stronger than a lot of these kids. I've trained harder. And I probably can find my way on this team if I adopt and kind of exploit my physical prowess and my ability to throw big body checks and my ability to be an extremely mean and intimidating player. And I know this team needs someone like that to go over to Europe. So I almost sort of pivoted on the spot. And instead of going for like that role of the goal scorer and and the passer, um, which I kind of was on the on the Sarnia Sting team, I basically said I'm just going to go and hunt everybody down, knock everybody over till I earn a spot on the team, and that's kind of what I did. And I went over to Europe. Me and a couple other guys on the team just basically brought that standard Canadian brand of hockey, where if you had another jersey on, it it was going to be a really long, long. 60 minutes for you and I was going to make you feel very bad for being from another country. And you know, hearing myself say these words, it's a little scary, I'll be honest with you. I can separate the athlete from the person and I think I'm two different, you know, people. But that's just the hard truth is that when I get on the ice, it's me versus you and I'm going to do, you know, what it takes to get there and that's how I made the Canadian team. And we ended up winning a gold medal. And then I believe I played another time for the Canadian team and won a silver. But that's the mentality I had. You know, Rich, I knew you as a goal scorer, a passer, somebody that made things happen on the ice versus a sledgehammer. And it was interesting. It's a great lesson for people out there. You pivoted because you saw an opportunity to advance your career. 
And I think those are the moments in life where we always reflect back on because that was a big fork in the road for you. I don't regret any any decision I've made. At that time, I did what I thought I had to do in that moment to get to the next level and to play a certain style of hockey that would advance me through the international ranks and the junior ranks and, and hopefully one day become a pro. You're also making other decisions and that's you're, you're playing hockey and you're, you're tasting the fact that you belong with the best of the best. Your drugs and alcohol consumption gets worse and you even now go from soft drugs to cocaine. The whole thing turns itself into a bit of a mess and demanding to be traded from Sarnia and then heading off to Barry for your last season. How did you even manage to continue to compete and be on the radar of the NHL while so much of your other side of your life is spiraling the wrong way? I think that I crossed that imaginary line from occasionally, you know, getting drunk and occasionally, you know, doing some drugs. The reason I, I asked for a trade from Sarnia to Barry was I was blaming a lot of things around me and I was blaming my environment and I thought I needed to change. I thought I, I needed to be closer to home, my parents. That was something that I, I sort of justified in my head as a, as a good reason to walk away from Sarnia. That's actually a regret that I have in my life was, was requesting that trade. And I, if I could go back, I would do it over again. But I believe I crossed that imaginary line and it coincided with me being in Barry, and it coincided with me scoring more goals in a season than I had scored in the in the three years prior and assists. And it coincided with me signing an NHL contract and becoming probably one of the best players on any given nights for the Barry Colts. And as that season went along, I became more destructive off the ice. I made more decisions that were extremely harmful for me and the people around me. And I began doing things that I said I would never do and crossing lines I said I would never cross. There are some life-changing events that happened behind the scenes and in my personal life that would spark, you know, a chain reaction of things down the road. And all the while I'm continuing to show up at on time at hockey. Mind you, I had moments where I would have two, three days of not sleeping and still going to the arena, giving all I could and, and, and you know, doing well. Mind you, everything's falling apart off the ice and I'm as depressed as I've ever been. And I'd officially crossed that line from being a young kid and maybe experimenting and partying, as you said, because it was fun for a bit. And then it just became not fun. And then it became, I had to drink. I had to use the Coke. I had to take the prescription pills. That continued for the next, you know, three years into my early pro days. Now we're in a whole different world. I mean, it's one thing to be up three days and show up for the Barry Colts, but this this is the show. This is a professional contract. These are dollars involved. And you talk about struggling those three years, but I actually want to even go one step further. 2010, we were chatting earlier about your first NHL call-up. You know, you fought your way through the juniors, the NHL, and you follow it with a bender. And in your pre-interview, you say you think it was an attempt to end things, a cry for help. Take us to 2010, and again, one of those points in the road that I think define the Richard Clune that I know today. I received my first call up to the LA Kings. Prior to that, I had had an attempt to get sober and to deal with some of my issues and embark on therapy, and I couldn't do it. As things got worse and worse and worse, and I contemplated stepping aside from hockey. I contemplated taking a leave of absence. 
I got surprised with getting a phone call from, from my coach telling me the LA Kings wanted me to play. And I go up to the NHL, and I, it's the last place that I want to be. So Rippin and Clune, Clune's going after Rippin. Clune's the guy that's starting it. And you can see they turn, and look at Rippin. He's ready to throw. That's one of the most heartbreaking moments of my life is that I did so many things that were so hard to get to that level, and then I didn't even want to be there. I didn't want to be anywhere at that moment. After that season, I was in such a dark place. I couldn't go a day without some sort of substance. And I had become all the things that I hated about hockey. I had already had one attempt at rehab and I didn't want to go back and I didn't know how I was going to do anything. I didn't want to even be alive. After the season, I just basically had a two week period of do as many drugs as I can and drink as much as I can. And I hope I just don't wake up the next day. And I kept waking up. I called my brother, Matt, and he knew what was going on. He was probably the one person I felt like I could trust at that time. We came up with a plan of how I was going to make it through that time period. And that moment in my life is probably the strongest I've ever felt about anybody to date. My brother, Matt, essentially saved my life, did it together. I got help. You know, I was still very angry, confused, depressed, but I took those small steps something changed at that point. And it had nothing really to do with trying to prolong my hockey career. And I think that's why I've been successful at that because it had to do with me as a human being. Me, the human being, got lost along the way pursuing this hockey thing. When I wake up every day, I remind myself that I'm grateful to be alive and I have people that love me. I am an addict and I am an alcoholic and I cannot drink or use drugs. And beyond that, I can have a life beyond my wildest dreams. But if I put anything before those first few decisions, I'll lose it all. I rediscovered my humanity. Not only do you reclaim your humanity, you fall in love with hockey again, don't you? <laughs> I've never heard anybody say that to me, but I fell in love with hockey deeper than I've ever felt before. My love for hockey grows every day. My special guest, Richard Clune, an NHL player. Today he's the captain of the Marlies. I want to spend a little bit more time just for the people that don't know you as a hockey player. 2012, Nashville Predators. Fans love you. You're in the show. What does it feel like day in and day out to know that the most elite league in the world when it comes to hockey, you've got a locker there and it's a permanent locker. It's not you're coming up for a game or not. You are part of a team. Sitting in that locker room with players like Mike Fisher and Shea Weber, Pecorine, and I was living the vision that I had had for myself, you know, as a young boy and a young hockey player. And I was having the success and I felt like I was really starting to tap into that potential. Come to the rink every day and be coached by Barry Trotz, treating me as part of a legitimate member of the team. And, you know, it made it all worth it. I mean, it's the show where the average life expectancy or career expectancy of a player is you know, a couple of years. How many years have you been playing pro hockey? This is my 15th full professional hockey season. And you come to Toronto, sign as a free agent, and they really see something in you beyond your hockey ability. It's the fact that you've gone through all of this. You openly share and talk about it. And within you, which is something I've seen in you since you were that kid throwing up to the mask, you are an extraordinary leader. And I, I have to believe that Toronto is so happy to have that kind of heart and soul in their dressing room. And it's with great honor today, this morning, 
but the ninth captain of the Toronto Marlies for the 21 season, Rich Plume. Because they certainly didn't put the C on your sweater for playing time or goal scored. They put that C on your sweater because you truly are the captain. I think coming to Toronto, it was it was the combination of a team that was fresh with new management and looking for a new outlook and a new culture to reestablish themselves. I was in a place where I'm trying to reestablish myself as a player and they're in a place where they needed people to do it the right way and add to their culture and add to their their locker room. It was a perfect match. Have you come to terms with the fact that your role now might be less the Luke Skywalker and more the Yoda? That you're there to help other people get to where they want to go? I think that's something that is part of me lasting so long. If it was just about me, I probably would have walked away. Being able to be of service to others and my teammates and fill their cup, in turn, my cup gets filled. And I think that that motivates me to get out of bed every day. I want to end the interview by turning it back to you and and how dedicated you are to being the best physically and mentally. Do you think this commitment, is that where you're channeling this energy now that you might have unchanneled with drugs? Some people don't understand that, you know, we have only a certain amount of time on this earth. I think I've embraced my obsessiveness and I've uh, embraced uh, a little bit of my recklessness and my ability to push my body a certain way. And I think that as I get older, I'm starting to really, you know, understand recovery and balance and, and incorporate, you know, maybe more of the yin aspect of my training. Every day that I wake up, I have all that energy. There's just some parts of me that I don't want to ever get rid of. You know, there's some scars that are still lodged in there that, I use them as motivation and I turn them into fuel. Things that I do, I do them passionately. I do them hard and I push myself to the limits. Right now, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. So, Rich, the person that scouts said were too small, the drugs could have easily destroyed your ability to play. You're still playing professional hockey. Obviously, an incredible accomplishment. But what's next, brother? I know that you've looked at acting. You've written script writing. I mean, what's next for Dickie Gloom? <laughs> You know, I, I would love to. I, I, I've taken acting very seriously and I've learned from some great, great teachers here in the city. And, and one day, if my schedule were to open up, you know, at some point I will retire from playing hockey. I am just trying to make it to tomorrow at this point, but we'll see beyond next year what happens. Are you going after Tom Brady's uh, legacy and going to your 40s or what? I don't know. We'll see. Do I see myself playing beyond next year? I certainly could from an athletic point of view. I would love to get into working you know, with some of the youth here in Toronto, with sports or just kids in general, and sharing my story with people. I think that I've had a lot of requests over the years to come speak publicly. And with the hockey schedule being so demanding, and obviously COVID being an issue, hopefully we can move through that as a society and I can get into the public and maybe um, share my story publicly at speaking engagements. I think that's something that I would look forward to doing. So, Rich, I always end with the three things I've learned. And I think earning is a key operative word in your life. You've never really felt you deserve things, but once you learn that you can go after it, I think you treasure earning. I think the second thing is just that when you wake up in the morning, you say, first and foremost, I'm a human being and you went through hell. The Clune Brothers is your email. This is a tight family, your dad and your mom. The great lesson for everybody listening, wake up first and foremost and be a human being and so much of life will take care of it. And the last thing I think is just the sense of your honesty of the mistakes you've made and you're open to them and you still make mistakes and I still have scars inside me and you know they might be with me the rest of my life. I might get rid of them, but I'm going to use it 
as a way to motivate me. And I think so many people get paralyzed by fear and a sense of impossibility. And I, what I celebrate you, about you, Dickie Clune, is that uh, you're all about possibility. Thank you for joining me on Chatter That Matters. Thank you. I'll just leave you with one more thing. My buddy Jeremy Bracco, uh, he rooms with me on the road and he keeps bugging me. He says, you know, Dickie, are you, are you going to come back? He's like, Dickie, come back. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. Richard Clune is still playing professional hockey as the captain of the Toronto Marlies because he sought and received help for his substance abuse. Many years ago, he had the courage to seek help to overcome his addictions, and we're all better for it. His family, his friends, society, because today Richard's giving back by sharing his stories, mentoring others, and setting a leadership example for all. But Richard's one of the lucky ones. Today, only one in five youth with a mental health illness can get access to the care they need. Many families spend months waiting in line for mental health services, only to be informed that they're in the wrong line, forcing them to join another waitlist where they struggle to support their child at home. I've heard stories of parents and their families spending years being referred in circles, and in some cases, even ending up back to where they started. And each year, more and more youth are looking for help to cope and to find cures as these forces have changed, this pandemic and climate change, the march of technology pounded us. And the consequences, the lockdowns, things we once took for granted, like a high school graduation or a charted career path, are being washed away. And in doing so, the psyche shifts from security to insecurity, certainty to uncertainty, and possibilities become impossibilities. These people need help. And RBC, through their foundation, and RBC Future Launch supports more than 150 mental health organizations across the country. That makes them one of the largest supporters of youth mental health in Canada. And what I've learned and what I like is where RBC is focusing a lot of their effort. The first is with navigation, to help people navigate this complex system and to close the gap between those seeking care and finding it. RBC is investing in navigation apps that work to connect youth and their families with the mental well-being services they need and as efficiently as possible. Second is access. In many parts of our country, there are not enough mental well-being service providers to meet demand. And one of the ways to close this gap is to invest in technologies that use email and apps and web posting, phone and live video to provide assessments, diagnosis, and care that would otherwise be delayed or not available at all. So a big shout out to RBC for providing much needed funds to help navigate a complex system and help to improve access. And an even bigger shout out to all who work in the mental health area field and to all the youth that are struggling to cope, especially during these times, and all the families and friends that love you and struggle alongside you. I hope that you find the help that you need and deserve. It's Tony Chapman, let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.